So, Brian, you are aware of the worst video game ever made, right? Um, yeah. 1983, Atari, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Worst game ever. Yeah, that didn't happen. What do you mean it didn't happen? That game doesn't actually exist. Yes, it does. It it does. It was so bad that they actually no, got... No, no, I've heard this. This is a conspiracy theory. And it's not a conspiracy theory. No, it's theory. a conspiracy theory. The theory is that the game was selling so badly that Atari bought back all the copies that were in circulation, dug a hole somewhere in the deserts of New Mexico, and buried it, and covered it in cement, and that's the last we ever saw of it. And then somebody accidentally falls upon it in the last year or so. They dig it up, and now the, the truth has been revealed. I say nay-nay. Well, it's true. Nah. Yeah. Nah. Yes, it's real. Nah. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. And this is quite literally the fourth time that we've recorded this introduction. That's okay. <laughs> we are on a roll, people. We're on a roll. We had a, we had a little audio snafu. Yeah. Uh, That's before. okay. It's okay. That's okay. But we got it. You're doing good. I'm doing good. Sarah's not here. Yes, we know. She's got timing troubles. As you guys now know, we double up recordings oftentimes. So she'll be back uh, the next episode. Right. It's not to say that Sarah is deathly ill. She's she's fine. She's having the same tummy ache. We're just so happy you're hearing us, you know, a couple weeks apart. Indeed. We need to correct you. Because you made yeah, an error last episode. I know episode. I did. So, and and it's, this is one that I totally realized and just didn't want to have to go back and try to fix. So, uh, I was talking about uh, Mario and Jumpman, which I did correctly refer to him as Jumpman. Before that, I said Plunger Man or Plumber. Plumber Man. Plumber Man. Which I thought was totally a thing that was said along with him. Apparently, I totally made that up in my own head and thought it was real. So, I'm just like throwing it out there. That's not a real thing. Plumber Man sounds like a like fifth-rate superhero. But it sounds right. I mean, like, Jumpman, obviously he jumps, right? And he's a plumber, so it kind of makes sense that he'd be Plumber Man. And clearly, Mario is more powerful than that. He's got, like, the Fire Flower, he's got the well, Raccoon. yeah, I know, I'm just saying it's an easy mistake to make. He's got Yoshi. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's you sure? And yeah. thankfully, we forgive you for those mistakes. Right. If it wasn't for the t-shirt you're wearing right now. I know. How dare hey. you, sir? Hey, our listeners can't see, but he's wearing a, a, a lovely light blue Heather t-shirt with a uh, Nintendo NES game controller on it that says the words, classically trained. Which I am. Not clearly. It doesn't mean I can read. <laughs> that is a scathing indictment of the impact <laughs> of video games on our culture, Eric. Scathing indictment. I don't remember you giving me so much uh, grief before the whole technical engineering problem happened earlier. <laughs> I am trying to, this is a common political technique. I am pushing the blame away from me. Yeah. Away from me. It's called burning a straw man. Yeah. Burning a straw man. Okay. Uh, But seriously, what we were talking about last time is more contemporary history, right? Going back to the 60s up to today, uh, even though it's recent, it's really the probably one of the more pervasive elements of our culture today, which is video games. Yeah, video games are everywhere, and they're experienced by all different age groups and all different sexes, and they are very popular everywhere around the world in one form or another. So they're an important element of our modern history, and they're important to talk about. Indeed, and where we ended last time is we had drawn a line in the history of video games, and as there should be. Right. There is a point where everything happens before Mario. Thank you. And everything happens 
after Mario. Right. BM. No. And AM. I only did it because there's some people who may have skipped the last episode. No, you, you only did it because you're trying to agitate me is what you're doing. That, that's <laughs> The joke has been that's said fine. once. That's fine. I shan't repeat it again. Until about 15 minutes later. <laughs> we'll we'll make run a, out of another jokes. mistake. <laughs> we'll make another audio error and we have to do this all over again. Yeah. Uh, but for sure, this yeah. is the last time. Before Mario and after Mario. Right. So why? After Mario, big deal because... Well, for, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. A whole lot of reasons. A couple different, yeah. But the big one is that there was a turning point that was happening in the American gaming industry. Right. Right. Atari was not doing well. Nope. Right? They were they were producing some very lackluster games. The E.T. Oh, yeah. comment we made earlier was actually 100% right. true. Just, just, just two years after Mario comes on the scene, right? Yeah. Then you have 1983, which was known as the big crash. And it was a big problem for the American gaming industry. Right. Because you had all these different gaming companies out there now. And they're all producing all these different consoles. And their games they're putting out are absolute crap. The quality has declined significantly. When we're talking about E3, that's a re- or ET, that's a that's a real thing. That, that was, was a real it, example. It yeah. is the worst video game ever. Yeah. And it was an example of also where video games were going. I mean, studios were realizing they could do corporate tie-ins. Yeah. For uh, for and and believe me, they had had a load of successful ones after this. This was, I think, one of the earlier attempts to do a video game tie-in. But, you know, I mean, Star Wars had done it so much better, and even Star Trek yeah. had done it way better. I think even Jaws may have had a video game tie-in. Possibly, but, I, yeah. you know, it was just, it was really terrible, and it was just so indicative of the time. Yeah. And so many of these gaming companies went under. They, yeah. they filed for bankruptcy, and you never saw them again. Yeah, and we see this becomes a trend. There's a trope that video game companies go through, which is when they... <sighs> When they realize that they're they're not able to to play the hardware game anymore, when they're not able to make a console that can compete against you know the market, yeah, they end up shifting focus and they end up focusing on something else. Like they fo- like what happens with Atari and with Sega, they focus on games because they just they can't make a, a console people want anymore, right? Exactly. Um, and you're starting to see even now with Nintendo, but we're going to get to that. We'll get to that later because we haven't even put Nintendo really on the mark yet. We talked about it with Donkey Kong. Again, America hadn't really gotten a chance to see Nintendo yet, Not other yet. than other than until Donkey Kong had come out. Right. Uh, there was some arcade games that had kind of come out, and Nintendo had been around for a while producing video games. And they had been producing card games since the 1940s. Right. And, and when they were producing video games, there were these pretty simple, like the Odyssey, like pretty, pretty temporary. Right. And pretty they were only being released in Japan. Systems. Yeah, exactly. Only in Japan. You didn't see them statesides. Yeah. But what you <clears> did see in 1983 that was big, that was huge, was, of course, the Famicom. And that was what later become the Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES when it was first released in Japan. And Famicom was huge. Absolutely huge. Got everyone just totally titillated in, in Japan around video games. And yes, it was an 8-bit console, but the, the video game lineup they had for this thing was absolutely incredible. Absolutely. Mario, Duck Hunt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Duck Hunt, Tetris would later be Tetris released on it. huge. Legend of Zelda. Uh, you know, you've got some pretty huge things that you, are going You have out. games that are being developed that are exclusive to that brand, to yeah. that identity. They have a whole... Yes, whereas with Atari, you were taking common mechanics and you were adapting them for your own needs. You're seeing like really rich IP coming up. Like yeah. nar- you're seeing narratives being formed through and gaming. It was uh, not until 1995 this console was even discontinued. Yeah. I mean, think about that for a minute. Yeah. I still have one. Yeah. I still have a lot an of NES books for the novelty. Yeah. And it still works. 
Mostly. They're, they're, they're totally awesome. Yeah. So uh, super awesome for Japan, not so good for America. What was going on in America that was actually pretty awesome was that the video game industry was now moving to computers in a way that it hadn't before. And we can thank the Commodore 64 being one of the most populous personal computers ever purchased for, for really helping out a lot with that. Because Commodore 64 was amazing. I mean, it had over a thousand different uh, releases that were put out in terms of software. Now, obviously, not all of those were games, but the fact that you had a very powerful 8-bit console uh, that supported color and could do a lot of really great stuff, that was multi-purpose. That got it into so many more homes, because now it wasn't just for games, it could also be used for business and, and right. for your personal finances and all these things. And the competitor to this at this point was really the Apple II, right? right. You're Apple II, about- IBM uh, PC right. was out, the IBM Personal Computer. Right. And, you know, they were great, but they were also very expensive as well. Very expensive. Apple had focused primarily on education right. markets to get their computers in the house. Which and had awesome games, like Oregon Trail. Which had been out for a long time, actually. Oregon Trail's a staple Yeah, as as Um, a really text-based adventure before it ever had graphics attached to it. But it's been around for a really long time. Um, And if I'm not mistaken, you also start to see earlier, like, forms of video poker on these games now. But uh, but also, I think even the earliest form of the Where's in the World is Carmen San Diego. Right. I think it was an Apple II release in Commodore 64. Absolutely. Yeah. One other super cool thing that you see at this time is Cinematronics' debut of Rick Dreyer's uh, Dragon Lair. Have you ever played Dragon Lair before? Never have. I, of course, heard of it. It is so cool. Yes. So, laser discs, back when those were a thing. <laughs> laser discs. You remember those? I do remember those. They, they were, were like the size of a of like a hubcap. Yeah, they were the size of, a, of, of an actual like record. Yeah. But it was silver. Like, wait, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. You play videos on this? Yeah, it was a super Ser- giant Uber CD, right? 30 minutes of video. Right. Yeah. Uh, and... This had one of the first kind of um, cinematic cutscenes to be incorporated into games, and it was all very, like, you know, press and play kind of gameplay, right? You kind of sent him on his journey, and there was pre-animated, you know, events that would happen, right? So you didn't have direct control over the character, but it moved the storytelling element forward in a huge way. Yeah. In a way that would only really be matched by games that were being made in Japan. Because the Famicom had that game lineup that was just so revolutionary, that was so thought and emotion invoking, that had adventure and storyline that you didn't see in games before this, that were very simple. They were very two-dimensional, not just literally two-dimensional, because we haven't moved into 3D gaming just yet, but the, the gameplay wasn't very imaginative. And now once you got into games like this, you had a whole new way of thinking. Right. By adding in those brief moments of narrative, you can engage the user in what is really honestly just simple, basic mechanical movements, but it's because there's now there's a there's a drama that's being created yeah, around there's, it. Yeah, there's a, there's a passion, there's a desire, there's a drive to get going where mm-hmm. you're supposed to be. Yeah. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that other puzzle type games simply fell away and didn't exist anymore. In fact, in 1985, the most famous of all puzzle games was created. Tetris, yeah. Tetris. Tetris. Oh, Tetris. We got to pause for a minute and talk about Tetris <laughs> because it was huge. So 1985, what's going on in Russia? Uh, people were walking around in T formation and then <laughs> in L formation. Uh-huh. And they were trying to to join together and to make to create geometric shapes. All because of, of, of communism, of course. Yes. Indeed. Thank you, Brian, for that history lesson. <laughs> um, obviously, the USSR 
still around. But was on the verge of collapse. On the verge of collapse. Things were not well. But nonetheless, it was still trying to exert its dominance globally, right? Mm-hmm. So enter Russian programmer Alexei Pietnov, who invents Tetris. You know, the, 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 the very game that we're talking about here. And he invents it for um, the, essentially the Russian government, right? Because, you know, he was working in a local university at the time, and therefore whatever he invented, Russia invented. And Russia saw the popularity of it in Russia and decided to export it to the United States. It was actually the very first video game export uh, from, the United, from the Soviet Union to the United States. Uh, one of their first exports really ever. And it took the United States by storm. It was hugely popular. It had this incredibly popular and catchy uh, soundtrack that went along with it as well. And it had all these very iconic images of the Soviet Union associated with it, but people didn't care. They just ate it up because the gameplay was so good. Yeah. And, and it, was, it also incorporated classical music yeah. into it, too. And it and was dramatic. right? And specifically, it was classical music from, of course, Russian composers. Right. right? And, and here's the thing that, that was so cool is that, you know, this was a bridging moment between these two warring cultures who had been locked in the Cold War. And so many video games of the 1970s and 80s were very Cold War themed in a sense, like Missile Command and stuff like that. Right. They all had to do with impending doom and war and espionage. And instead, here was something that was distinctly Russian and being embraced everywhere you, in the you world. You can't get more Russian than, like, you see the opening screen for Tetris and it's Lenin's tomb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Behind you. You have you know? the Kremlin in plain view. I mean, obviously, there's it's super Russian. Yeah. Now, here's what sucks. Alexei did not get paid for his work. Not a huge surprise. But even though he invented Tetris, it was can selling. I actually, can I actually say this and it be justified? Sure. Those communist bastards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, that was until after the fall of the Soviet Union. So um, he actually moved to the United States in 1991. And about five years later, the, re- the rights finally returned to him. So now all the royalties are associated with him. And he does get paid for Tetris. But uh, he sure didn't for about the first um, 10 years that Tetris was in existence. That is the really crappy end of the stick. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, hey. Boy. There you go. Who, who th- th- that's just the way it was. But yeah, you're right. Like you said, this that the impact this this game had was it 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 transcended culture, right? Yeah. We all were united in the, the frustration of not being able to to uh, keep up with the pace of the game, right? That was the whole thing. Is that as you kept doing it, it got the the blocks kept falling at an increasing rate, and you uh your goal was to you couldn't fill up those lines fast enough, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But sure enough, 1985 did have finally a re-emergence of the video game market after of course, being with, in a study with the decline. release of Back to the Future. Thank you, Brian. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and my birth, naturally. And well, um, my birth. And our birth. Naturally. Our collective births, yes. Naturally. Um, but no, in 1985, after a couple of years of a decline in the video game industry, which was actually probably the best thing for it, because keep in mind, all of the really crappy stuff was being weeded out and leaving behind an opportunity for things like Nintendo of America to come into play and release now, not the Famicom, because Fami was associated with family, and family had a negative connotation when it came to video games at the time. So Nintendo of America decided to release it as Nintendo Entertainment System for that reason. I find that so ironic. Because I'm going to share a little personal story. Sure. I think I might have shared it before, on this, if not in this podcast on Nerds on Film. Um, my dad, when he turned 30, was get was bought an NES by my mom 
That's it awesome. was it was absolutely a family console. Yeah. Now, family time usually meant us watching my dad uh-huh. beat Mario. Sure. And then beat Tetris. Uh-huh. And then beat Duck Hunt. <laughs> yeah. We didn't really play all that much with it until he was, you know, at work. And then we played yeah. the crap out of it. But nevertheless, it was a communal experience. We were rooting my, we were rooting for my dad. We were watching him play through, you know? But you were the exception because my family, like so many other families around the United States, video games were... It was believed that it was, it was taking away from the family. It was distracting the yeah. kids. Well, video games were thought to be rotting your brain, right? Like television, comic books, and yeah. apparently the zipper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Whatever scapegoat was... Yeah, whatever was staple was being used for the depravity of, yeah. of the the American family. Right? So I, I never had anything like that until much later. You know, like I said, I had the hand-me-down on Atari 2600, which was totally cool for me. I was fine with that. We eventually got a hand-me-down Game Boy as well. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was a whole different way of having to market it, to get it into people's hands. So they, they did, and they branded it as such, and it was a huge success. It was an enormous blockbuster, and so many of these games were coming over from Japan because that's where, obviously, the console had originated, and Nintendo, being a Japanese company, now was bringing over ports of Japanese games. Right. So the American audience had to wait sometimes years to receive the port of a game that they wanted, that they had heard about, which was the exact opposite way things had been just you know five, six years earlier. So that was kind of an adjustment, and the ports weren't always perfect. Uh, sometimes those English translations were pretty bad, notoriously and bad. And those, like, if you have a copy of one of those, those are worth a lot yeah, of money. Yeah, they're super rare because they try to get them off the market and replace them. Can I them. mention, though, that eventually they found their stride, and they also learned how to how to really, like, market the games, even down to, like, the design of the cartridges. Because I remember, like, you wanted to have Zelda, not just because it was an adventure game, but because the cartridge was gold yeah everything was super cool yeah uh and speaking of zelda for a moment because the legend of zelda is a really pivotal moment in gaming history huge because it's essentially an rpg right yeah and it was the first rpg that had a real progression system because you had rpgs before this and, and most there are rpg them, board games right dungeons and dragons sure but right? most of those were uh text-based adventures or like i said like you said you know tabletop games and they didn't really have a character that you started out being really crappy, right? You know, he only has a couple hearts of life. He doesn't even have a sword. He's got basic stuff. But as he progresses through the narrative, by the end of the game, he's got all the weapons that are available to him. He's got a special shield. He's got potions. He's got all these extra hearts. All your hard work you put into developing this character is shown right in front of you. And that was a huge and pivotal moment in that storytelling, that change in storytelling. And one that would only be progressed further by games like Final Fantasy. God, of course, Final Fantasy, yeah. Final Fantasy was supposed to be one of Square's last projects before they closed their doors because they were doing so very poorly. Nope. Nope. <laughs> because of the success of Final Fantasy, they have now produced over 15 main title series releases in addition to countless other uh, spinoffs. Here's what blows me away. Because I-, I was never into Final Fantasy myself. I had a friend in college who was like obsessed with the Final Fantasy games. And what blows my mind is of all those games, we really, when we get to like the mid 90s, we get to Final Fantasy VII. Oh, man. Which to this day, so here's, so for those who are completely agnostic to Final Fantasy, when you get to each new sequel, it's only not the same continuity. It's totally different. It's Generally, almost like yeah. everything is like everybody's pretty much reincarnated. There's a, there's a common villain, Sephiroth, who's in all the games. No, he's not. He's, he's not only in all the Final games, Fantasy VII. But he's. You're thinking of Sid. Oh, so sorry, Sid, sorry. Sid is a, a reoccurring character who's who's a sub. He's kind of like a an extra character. He shows up in a lot of the same. Thank games. you. That's what I meant, that's what I meant to say. But um, some of the games have Sephiroth as the bad guy, though, don't they? Well, okay, yeah, but they're just the spinoffs of Final Fantasy VII. Fair. They're okay. all following the same kind Got of storyline. Thank you. 
nevertheless drives my point home so you every game is a regeneration yeah right not with the exception of Sid, who is a common character, even though he's right. not the same character. Usually, it's whole new characters, similar world. They have like chocobos and all of them, which are big feathered birds you ride around on, and moogles, which are these little pink guys with pom poms on their head. But right. you know, yeah. And this is common in Japanese culture too. They did this with the Sailor Moon series too. There was a couple t- points where they are the Sailor Scouts are, uh, or the Sailor Soldiers actually uh, are uh, reborn a couple times. So it's a common Japanese trope, but. This, the Final Fantasy VII series was so popular that they're still making games in that continuity. So big, they got even Disney involved because Kingdom Hearts is yeah. Disney's merger with Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. It's huge. You have Mickey and Donald and Goofy playing Final Fantasy. And Cloud. And Cloud. <laughs> and Cloud's there. And Tifa's there. It's great. It's huge. Yeah. Huge. So we cannot stress enough that this game was just... Tremendous. It was just it, the it was whole the, premise. It, so when I got my PlayStation, we're going a little ahead here, but yeah. when I got my PlayStation, it was a gift from my godfather, and it was the first real new console I'd ever gotten. Never gotten a console at the same period in which it was being released new, still sold new. And it was a huge thing. My my grandfather had recently died. I was very upset. I was going through a hard time. He thought he'd get me a really nice birthday present to help a little bit, because it was right around the time of my birthday when my grandmother mm. died a few years earlier, so it was still pretty... It was a rough time. It was an emotional time for me. Yeah. And it was incredible. And I remember playing Final Fantasy VII. I remember my mom remembering two, me was, playing. It was two discs. I remember that, too. Oh, it was four discs. It was four discs. Yeah, it was huge. My my mom... two cases, four discs. Yeah. That's what it was. My mom came in at pretty much two in the morning every single night, school night or not, telling me to turn that damn thing off because I had to go to bed. And... I couldn't put it down. It was just such an amazing adventure. I'd never di- played anything like it before. And when Eris dies, it's just, it was such an emotional experience. I, you know. Spoilers for this. Well, come on. It's been out long enough. There should be damn spoilers. It's been spoilers. out 20 years. Yeah. It's been out since 1997. Come on, yeah. get over it. Uh, I, I cried. I saved my game. I turned it off and I went to bed. Because I was devastated. <laughs> I couldn't believe what had happened. And I didn't pick it up for at least another full 24 hours because I was still processing. Wow. It was emotional. It yeah. was a big experience. I'd never had anything like yeah. that in and a video game. That, that game wouldn't have happened had it not been for the impact of Zelda. Right? Yeah. So that's huge. And so Square clearly pulled themselves out of the uh, out yeah. of the ashes. And the original case. Final Fantasy, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, the original Final Fantasy. Might have something to do with it. Success. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Just a little bit. So, 8086 yeah. sees the NES take a huge explosion onto the market after being released in 85 in a small test market in New York. But now it went huge, super big. To compete with it, Sega introduces the Master System. The Sega Master System. Which was pretty much just a clone of the Famicom for the most part, but without as impressive a game lineup. Still, some pretty awesome That's games That's okay, released. because they... Sega eventually had their heyday when they actually had a whole new system that could compete with the NES, right. better in graphics as well. Oh, hugely so. The Sega Genesis, right? That's right. Sega not only Genesis. that, but the Sega Genesis, not only that, they were genius enough that they also came up with the, um, it was, what, I can't remember the name of their portable. What was it called? The Game Gear. The Game Gear, thank you. I was going to say Game Boy, but no, that's not right. Game Boy is Nintendo. What I was going to say was what was genius about that is that whereas Game Boy required you to have a different cartridge for both the Game Boy system as well as the NES, Game Gear, you could technically use the same cartridge for both systems. Yeah, an adapter. Yeah, an adapter. But nevertheless, that's awesome. 
Yeah, like, real, real, very clever, very clever way of, of doing it. They also had a magnifying thing you could uh, put on the screen too. Really, really cool. Um, when you get to Sega Genesis, and of course you, they introduced Sonic the Hedgehog, right? Who was basically their Mario, right? It was their their marketable brand character they could use to to push the gaming industry forward. Yeah, I mean the the, the Sega Genesis was the first sixteen bit console on the market. Huge, yeah. And it pretty much blew everybody out of the water for the next couple of years in terms of its graphics power. But right. it really only had a few main titles that were that were really big. So Sonic was one of them. Golden X series was another. They had a few that were that were good, but they still weren't quite competing with Nintendo the way they wanted to. Right. Even though Nintendo's graphics were not up to par with them, they were still had the better lineup of games. Do you remember the Jaguar at all? Oh, of course I remember the Jaguar. Yeah, the Jaguar was a very short-lived console. It was Atari's attempt to stay relative. And it was their 16-bit competitor to the Genesis. Didn't didn't really take, unfortunately. Not really. It just didn't have the same kind of game support that it needed. Right. Uh, NEC also released the TurboGrafx-16, which was a little deceptive, because even though it was being sold as a 16-bit console, it only had an 8-bit processor at a 16-bit graphics processor, right. but its overall speed and efficiency just couldn't keep and up with everything And you know better this than I would, but this is a point in time where, with the exception of maybe Activision, really, for the most part, when you were developing games, you were developing them from one platform. You weren't really going cross-platform with gaming yet. It wasn't really doing that yet. You had, yeah. you had these console-specific games because it was so competitive that they didn't want to... Right. They so, wanted to sign on to whoever was winning, more or less, or and, who they and, thought was winning. And that's the big deal, right? That's why some of these consoles failed, because yeah. they didn't have the games N- that people N- wanted to play. Exactly. Nintendo had all the support from not just Nintendo, you know, big release games, but also from the third parties. Right. But Sega still had a lot going for it, especially with Sonic the Hedgehog, because he was edgier than Mario, right? He was kind of a badass. He was sort of well, an anti-hero. Sure, but they were still catching up. I mean, Mario had already had Mario 3 at this point. They were starting to think even doing Mario Land or Mario, uh, Mario no- World. nonetheless, Sega held its own for quite a while it through did. the early 90s. They had quite a few major movie tie-ins that, um, I mean, around the early 90s is when you start to see, particularly with movie uh, adaptations, like they're starting to say, okay, we'll release a version for Nintendo and we'll release a version for Sega, you know. Um, sometimes there was still exclusivity, but there was still nevertheless a couple of different cross-platform options out there. But here's the big thing. Yeah. So whereas Sega definitely had some dominance in terms of early entry into the into the big graphics gameplay, the handheld market was soon to be dominated purely by Nintendo. Right. So 1989 also saw the release of the Game Boy. The Game Boy was huge. Yeah. And with that, you had Mario and Tetris ports for the Game Boy, and it was enormous. And it sold for $109, so it's still very expensive, but not nearly as expensive as buying a new $249 Sega Genesis. And it was brilliantly designed because it was essentially a controller with a screen. So yeah. if you knew how to play Nintendo, you knew how to play with the Game Boy. Exactly. Uh, Atari also tried to make a handheld that same year, the Lynx, which was the first color I re- handheld. I remember the Lynx. And it sucked. But hey, you know, it had its yeah, moment. Well, the, the Game Gear was handheld too, but that was a couple years later. But right. that was a color handheld because it, it had almost the same graphics as the um, as the full console version did. So. so before we move out of the 80s, I just want to mention a couple of pretty notable games, right? So you, you had a few that we've already mentioned, like Pac-Man and Missile Command, stuff like that. Castle Wolfenstein, though, was a big game in the earlier 80s. Really a big deal. And that was a top-down version of what we've become now more familiar with, which is Wolfenstein 3D, which is the first-person shooter where you're killing Nazis, which, let's face it, killing Nazis is always popular. Well, I think it's we a know, lot of fun. I think we know it better by what it became. Doom. Right. So, yes, we'll get to Doom in a minute. 
<laughs> we'll get to Doom in a Doom. That's a big, that's a that's whole a, other part a huge, of the topic. That's not a huge turning point, for sure. But games like uh, Centipede and Defender and Pitfall and King's Quest and Duck Hunt, these were all huge games that propelled things forward. Yeah. Duck Hunt was awesome. You had the little gun adapter. You had a light you gun. Could... Exactly. Light guns were awesome. Yeah. Uh, but 1991, so once we finally get into the 90s, then you've got the Super Nintendo release. And this is the answer to the Genesis, but with the big game library to back it up. Right. So you it's, have a 16-bit system. Yeah. Wasn't really backwards compatible with N- with NES, but nevertheless, NES was like, no, nope, we've been repping for this for the past yeah. couple of years. Backwards compatibility wasn't even a concern for people at this time. Yeah, not, at least not yet. They eventually did do some re-releases of the older well, yeah, games. You, just, you held on to your old console because you just kept playing your old games with the old right. console. And as they got later on, they were like, well, let's release like Mario. The same port, we'll just make it a little better sound and graphics and we'll at least for the new system. Now, what's awesome is that, you know, if you think about it from a marketing standpoint, it actually makes sense in this particular case to release the Nintendo two years later, the Super NES, because people ended up buying and begging for, you know, Genesis, right? Had it for two years, didn't have the game library they wanted for it, but they had it, right? Good for them. Now, Super Nintendo comes to the market. It's a long enough time that you can probably beg your parents to buy you another expensive game console. And now you have two consoles. And the whole concept of having two consoles to play two different game libraries became a big thing at this point. And that's okay. And then Sega tried to one-up them again with the Sega CD in, like, 94, I want to say. Yeah, Sega CD. So starting to use compact discs at a, right around this time with lots of different types of consoles. Like, the Turbo right. Graphics also had a CD component that you could buy separately and plug into right. it, right? That was an early experimentation, and, and a lot of them didn't do terribly well Yeah. Um, until another big player comes in the market. We'll get to that in a second. But we do want to mention Jaguar again for a reason, just chronologically, because 1993 is when Atari tried to release it. And it's a shame that they just never had the game library, because this thing was a freaking beast. Yeah. It was technically a 64-bit console. And this is a few years before Nintendo 64 would be released, because it actually ran two 32-bit processors working together. Very few people realize that, because very few people ever played it. That's right. It was. It was a 64-bit. That's right. Technically. Yeah. The games didn't really take advantage of it, though. That was the problem. The games right. were still all pretty much running at either 16 well, or 32 And people are probably wondering, why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because when you have 64 bits of processing power, you have enough to be able to run games 3D. in three, men, three dimensions, right? That's right. Well, actually, 32, you can do 3D as well. You can, but people weren't really... Because people weren't adapting 32, they were adapting... They were using 16. That was just the standard right. for... 32 so. would come soon, though. Yeah. Something else happened, though. Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut... The uh, senator. Senator Lieberman... Uh, started to investigate violence in video games because there were some other big titles that were coming out around this time, like Mortal Kombat, for example, which were hyper-violent games that were, you know, kind of causing a lot of questions to happen. We also have Street Fighter 2 coming Street out, too. Fighter, Street Fighter 2 was not nearly as gory. Right. It was still, but it was still violent. It was and actually, violence, yeah. yeah, I mean, so you had a lot of kind of questions being asked. Does do video games cause violence in American youth? And there was this huge attempt to kind of kill video games and take them under and and not allow them to be made anymore. And Walmart decided to carry, like, stop carrying 50 games that it thought it was controversial. Students of history will know this is not the first time Congress has tried doing this. They did the same thing in the 50s with comic books, with Seduction of the the Innocent. Exactly. And we now know that there have even studies that have said that there was some early studies that said, well, yes, it does and and can, can lead to some aggressive behavior. We now know that actually people who play video games that are violent are actually less likely to be violent individuals. Yeah. So 
So, and there's a lot of studies that have been done on this and a lot of different opinions. And I'm sure our listeners have a lot of opinions on it as well. But for the most part, the, the truth is violence is present in just about every medium that you can absorb, whether it be in books, television, movies, video games, comic books, whatever it might be, violence is an element of human nature. And it doesn't mean that because you observe violence or even simulated violence that you yourself are becoming a violent person and are going to act those things out. I've been playing video games for a long time. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't really have a bad bone in my body. I don't believe in physical violence. I don't believe in hurting people. I implore it all. And it's not going to stop me from playing Battlefield, because I like playing Battlefield. But it doesn't mean I'm actually going to pick up a gun and go shoot somebody. I would never do that in a million years. So just using myself as an example here, from someone who's been playing games for a long time. Yeah. And someone who lets their kids play games. Although... You know, 1994, that's when they finally passed the Entertainment Software Rating Board, and they're the ones who who created this whole new system for rating games. The rating, yeah. And honestly, I don't let my kids see or play super violent video games. Obviously not. They're seven and nine years old. I don't feel like they need to be exposed to that at this moment. When they're older, they're going to encounter violence, and they can, you know, you know, have the proper guidance at that time. I'm waiting until I feel like that's the proper time. Doesn't mean they're not going to watch Mario bounce on top yeah. of people, though, you know. Thankfully, That's an active and violence. thankfully, you have a rating system that can help you guide you in that decision making. Yeah, although yeah. I, I'm my own rating system, really. Yeah, yeah, yes. It's a double edged sword, yeah. So, something interesting to talk about. When the Super Nintendo was being developed, Sony was, or excuse me, I should say, Nintendo was also thinking about what their next medium was going to be for delivering their games to people. Because cartridges were certainly limited, and it was impossible to really build multi-cartridge games, right, where you swap out for another cartridge. The technology wasn't there. So they were trying to find a way to make it easier to put all sorts of good stuff on there. Memory cards. Memory cards were one element, another piece of it, just that's for more like saving your data, but I'm talking about the actual game itself, how to deliver that game and what format they would do it on. And obviously the compact disc, which had been flirted around with for a little while now, was going to be the way of the future. Yeah. So they they didn't really get that until they get to the cube though, right? Well, exactly. Because they entered into contract with Sony to develop a CD system for their next console. And it broke apart. They did not work well together at all but sony got actually the upper hand with that because they started working on their own exactly hey it was their technology they were developing it they were going to sell it out to another company and but they could use it if they wanted to so where the sega cd had failed only a couple years before and where nintendo had failed in development sega took the upper hand yes the playstation enter the all holy playstation bow down to its video game superiority and everyone was like sony a video game system? Preposterous. What are these, what are these geometric shapes doing on a, yeah. on a D-pad? This is nonsense. And, oh, it's actually a really good system. And those geometric shapes also translated into polygons, which translated into the move, the real true move to 3D in a, in a fully realized way. Yeah. 3D had been experimented and played around with in a lot of ways before this. So I'm not saying that games didn't have 3D before this. Yeah, you, you started to see the end of side-scroller games. Yeah. As, you had started to see first-person Right. And now you have this huge explosion into 3D because, let's face it, folks, compared to a cartridge, which only contains a certain, you know, number of of megabytes, right? You know, usually it's under 100, well under 100. With the disc, you had 500 megabytes that you played around with. So you had games that were significantly larger in size. And uh, Nintendo just didn't get wise with it. So when they released a year later the Nintendo 64... They released it with a cartridge-based system, which was already antiquated by the time it came out. 
Yeah. Not to say their console wasn't powerful, because the PlayStation had a 32-bit graphics processor. The Nintendo 64, as the name suggests, has a 64-bit processor. It was such a prominent feature that they made it part of the branding for the name. And it was thought that that would be enough to move people away from Sony, and Sony would be dead in a matter of years. And it was a complete and total misjudgment. Misjudgment. I wouldn't say it was a failure on their part, though, because the N64 was a successful console. Hugely so. Games like GoldenEye and Mario <laughs> Thank 64. Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. GoldenEye was amazing. Those games propelled system. the platformer series and also the uh, first-person shooter into whole new levels of intensity. And Legend of Zelda, Orkiana of Time, uh, Majora's Mask. I mean, these were games that were and still are legendary games that have been brought over and ported onto how many new consoles? I don't know, but a lot of them. So, of course, Nintendo's going to succeed because Nintendo has a huge game lineup behind it. But here's Sony, the underdog. Nobody thought would succeed. And now Sony is the dominant player on the market right now. Sony is huge. And we can thank the Sony PlayStation for making that a reality. Games like we were talking about earlier, Final Fantasy VII, absolutely enormous. Crash Bandicoot, Spyro, some of the oh, first Crash games Bandicoot to come out. was awesome because Nintendo had Mario, Sega had Sonic. Crash was like a unique, adventurous, fun character yeah. you could play. I loved Crash Bandicoot. So you, you also had these games that were a little more abstract, that kind of found a home on this console because they could. Uh, games like the Tekken series, for example, which brought a whole new 3D kind of element to fighting. Right. Uh, but you also had games like Grand Theft Auto, the original Grand Theft Auto, which was a top-down uh, view of the, of the game, totally different than what it would later evolve into. But games like that, that were edgy. More mm-hmm. or less ended up on Sony. Uh, Road Rash, too, right? You yeah, had this whole Road thing Rash, about uh, Twisted Metal. Right. All these games that were super like Gen X games, right? The games that the Gen Xers would adore and love for generations. But you also had Final Fantasy VII. We talked about that. on the, but, yeah. but you had it on the PlayStation, though. Yeah. So, yes, you did say that. But I think that's important to know because sure. primarily before that... It was all Nintendo. It was all Nintendo. Yeah. They had switched platforms. That was a huge It was deal. a pretty big movement. And that is, yeah. that is important to, to point out. Uh, 96 saw the introduction of the Tamagotchi virtual pet. <laughs> um, selling we out of one. its... Yeah. Had one. Oh, I had one too. Selling out of its 30,000 unit supply in only three days when it was released in the United States. I don't even know how many they sold in Japan. And then they also had... They had all the little, you know, clones of it, basically. Yeah. Right? But Nano the, pet the, or whatever. The Sony PlayStation was catching up in 97 when they had sold its 20 millionth unit. So this was this was definitely taking off. Yeah. Sega was now under a lot of pressure. I do want to make a quick little addendum here because yeah. we're still talking about mid-90s. Sure. I think it's worth noting that in 95, 94, 95, Apple tried releasing a video game oh, console. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. They wanted a little piece of the, of the bargain. Now, keep in mind, this is the toward the end of the Scully era of Apple. Uh, yeah. John Scully, he was the one who basically was pushing out products for product's sake. Right. Keep in mind that before this, Scully was the... Um, CEO of Pepsi. So he was used to product pushing. Um, they made the Pippin. And Pippin actually was ahead of its time. Not the Pip Boy from the Fallout series. No, named after the uh, the historical character and the yeah. name of the musical. But uh, the Pippin was a big deal because it was a console that could, uh, that could connect to the internet. Right. The trouble was, internet was so new at this point that people were still getting used to getting computers that could get online, let alone having a gaming system that could also get online. So it was a bit too early for it, a bit too overpriced, 
It was much higher in cost sure. than some of the other consoles were. But it and laid a good foundation. Good foundation. They had no real games for it, though. Whereas Apple's, the Macintosh had some solid console level, like computer level games that were going on for it. They really didn't have a selection of console grade video games that they were able well, to play with. I wouldn't say the Mac had a solid series of games. Of computer games, I mean, they, they they had some good ones. They had SimCity, they had uh, Myst, they had uh, Marathon, they had... And that was about it. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. They had We're in the World is Carmen San Diego. <laughs> when it comes to games, the PC has always been the dominant, and still is to this day. Uh, and that's a whole other topic. We'll, we'll, we'll bridge that in a little bit for a little bit. The point I was trying to make is that they had a, there was a, a, probably a larger selection of games for the Mac platform than there was right. for the Pippin, so it did not really succeed right. at all. So let's talk real quick. We're, we're running out of time here. We still got a little time. Uh, we, we still got to get through this. Though. We might have to lightning around this. We should talk about the demise of Sega as a console maker because Sega released the Dreamcast in 1998. Which could get online as well. It could. It had a built-in Ethernet. Uh, port and, and modem and it was holy crap this thing was awesome computer I, graphics network she's really really good yeah my buddy in middle school cody he had one of them and i couldn't believe it, it had 128 bit graphics it blew everything else out of the water uh soul caliber was amazing i don't know how many times we played that and fantasy star online which was an online game on a console it was weird it was surreal and it was so good and it failed so bad Oh, so bad. Tell us why it failed, Eric. It just didn't have the support that it needed. Didn't have the game lineup that it needed. And it ran into more than a few problems, being that it was mostly operated on Windows CE. But that was supposed to make it easier for games to go between PC and Dreamcast. So they're going to have all these great PC games that have been released, you know, being ported over and brought over. Um, but it, it just never really caught on. It was super expensive. And then just a couple years later, the Sony PlayStation 2 launches. And that was a huge deal because that was not only just a gaming system, it was also a platform for watching DVDs, right? It was now an entertainment system. And and Dreamcast, honestly, put the nail in the coffin for it. Yeah. And it was huge because, yeah, you can watch DVDs on it now. It had a whole new interface that was designed around the concept of soon-to-be social media, right? Right. And it also included a port in the back for you to buy an additional adapter to go online, which I had to if I was going to play Final Fantasy XI. Right. Which I did. And holy crap, did I play that game a lot. It was my first MMORPG, right? So massively uh, multiplayer online role-playing game. That's what it stands for. MMO is what it's usually shortened down to. And it had so much demand that it sold out within the same day, by early morning when it released. And they only had about half a million units that went out. But they sold them all. And it took months before people could actually finally get their hands on it. I remember that. And to this day, this is a big deal when you when when they released new PlayStations. Right. right? Oh, the PS- absolutely. And ever since then, I think with the PS3 going forward, they like they make the price like $600, $700. So that they can, you know, they can regulate a little bit more the demand for and, it. And this was just the, the beginning of the new age of video games, right? Right. The graphics took a huge jump forward and the and the gameplay originality took a huge step forward. The Sims, which was based off of the super popular simulation game SimCity right. and all of its various counterparts on all these different consoles and computers and everything, uh, added a personal element to it where you were controlling your little Sim avatars and you gave them lives and families and they did all these things. And it was it was huge. It was absolutely huge. In fact, it eventually surpassed Myst as the top selling PC game uh, in 2002. So it, 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 
it was enormous. And all the expansion packs that came out with it. This was one of the first concepts where you took a game and you paid for it. And then you kept paying for it because they, they keep adding on new things that you could buy and download or not download these days, you download. You had to still go to the store and buy a disc. You could back save then. them to the system. Yeah, but you incorporated it. You en- enhanced your game by adding more to it. Right. And this is where PC gaming takes another giant leap forward away from console gaming. And because the PC gaming market now was incorporating discrete graphics cards as kind of its new thing, you could go and buy a new graphics card and add it to your existing computer whenever you felt like it. And they were expensive. But their power was generally much more than that of a console game. And that continues to be true right now. The PlayStation 4, as sophisticated as it is, has a graphics card in it that's less powerful than my five-year-old graphics card in my current PC gaming rig. So I have almost completely discontinued console use because, you know, you, you I mean, we're going to quickly list these off because we're running out of time here. But, you know, 2001, we have Microsoft come onto the market. They introduced the Xbox, which was their first attempt at making a gaming console. Which was also a hit. It was, but they lost a ton of money on it. Yeah. They, they spent so much money in advertising and trying to get those initial units out, they didn't actually make any money, or very much money, with the original Xbox. No, it was the 360 where they really, but that's 2005, so. Well, eventually, what, what really made them the money was Halo. Yes. Halo, which, which is a huge first-person shooting gaming uh, series, is enormous to this day. Which is a funny thing, because Bungie was originally supposed to release that game, because that was based off of the Marathon games. Yeah, that exactly. was gonna be Same a, universe, too. That was going to be a Macintosh game. Yeah. Bungie was bought by Microsoft, like, right. maybe three, six months before yeah. it was supposed to come out. Yeah. And they killed the Mac program immediately. They eventually released it, but years later. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Xbox was crazy, and it also had a huge advantage because it brought the Star Wars license to that game in a way that had never been seen before. Because you had, like, you know, Dark Forces and stuff like that Jedi on the PlayStation. Knight, Jedi Academy. Jedi Knight and Jedi Academy. Those were all older games on a previous console. With Xbox, you finally had Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, which is so one of the game. quintessential RPGs of our time. And it is such a, a huge, emotionally voice-acted RPG. That was really what set it apart, was a full voice-acting cast. I mean, yeah. it was so good. Somehow, I actually convinced my mom and my brother to buy me an Xbox just to play that game. Yeah. And it was, it and was, Halo. It was yeah. funny, because it was if you think about it, it's genius. There's like... A couple years before that, you'd had Star Wars Episode One come out. You had the prequels yep. of Star Wars being released. And everyone's like, well, this is awesome. You know what would be a more awesome? A prequel to the prequels. <laughs> yeah. One that didn't suck. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so like another 100 years before? No. No, we're going to 2,000 thousand years yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was awesome. It is so good. You can play it on on an iPad right now, actually. In I have it on really my awesome Mac, way. actually. Yeah, I have it on my iPad. It's great. Yeah, it's awesome. So, um, th- that, that was huge. And then we also need to just, for quick mention... That around the same time, around 2002, Nintendo released the GameCube. 2001, yeah. 2001, Game, GameCube yeah. comes out. And GameCube, which was codenamed Dolphin originally, was... <laughs> yeah, I know. Would not have worked under that title. Uh, what a failure in so many ways. It, it did not stand up technologically. And even though they finally moved to discs, they had mini discs. And sometimes you had to have multiple mini discs just to play one game that you could easily yeah. play on your PS2... You know, yeah. Because now you had games being released on multiple platforms. Yeah. Right? Because the developers wanted to take opportunity to sell to as many people as well, possible. I mean, it was it was one of the situations where to like the Nintendo of like loyalists, it yeah. was something they loved. If you're gonna play Mario, you had no choice. So like yeah. Mario Sunshine, awesome game. Uh Rogue Squadron, uh another Star Wars game, 
amazing. Luigi's but there Mansion. wasn't a whole lot. Yeah. yeah, Luigi's Mansion, also another classic. Not a whole lot, though. And then Wind Waker comes on the scene, and it's really the, the console's saving grace. And that was when we brought Zelda back into 3D again, not on the handheld this time, because that's what he had been on most of the time before, the, and, you know, between the N64 years and this. And now it's all cel-shaded and a whole new different way of taking it on. Right. And it was a dramatic you know, approach for a game company as notorious as Nintendo, who's so strict about keeping the status quo and keeping their games so similar to make such a huge diversion. Right. And keep in mind, we've skipped over the mobile, the mobile enhancements because there was Game Boy Color, Game Boy Pocket, and then eventually Game Boy 3D, which was a, was a system where you could actually play even some of the older console games in 3D, but not as well. Um, And this has all been kind of leading up to... Are you talking about Virtual Boy? No, no, not Virtual Boy. Virtual Boy was the was the VR visor with like, uh, what's Game Boy three D? I don't remember that. You don't. It was a okay. So the Game Boy Color yeah. came out, and that was a huge deal, right? Because even even though you didn't have as rich of a palette, you could play the older original games and still get color in them. Game Boy Pocket, which was just a more compact version of that, right? But Game Boy three D. This may have actually been after GameCube. But Are you talking it about was, dual screen? Not dual screen. That's the DS, right? There was a bit, there was a thing where you could uh, play the Nintendo with, um, it was a different design though. It was, I, I might not be calling it Game Boy 3D, it might have, it might have a different name to it, but the, the, the concept was that you could take an older game and you could actually turn it into 3D and huh. actually made you a little dizzy. You had to be careful because you couldn't play it for too long. I don't remember that. You don't remember that? No, I'm sure it exists. I just don't remember it. Anyway. It's case in point, that was actually later on, but what you're talking about with Zelda being primarily on the mobile systems that's what had been advancing on the mobile side right. of it it was that game boy had been making their game boy more compact more colorful and well game boy advance was game boy advance the right. next big step forward right, right. so totally it re-evolved the graphics game boy advanced sp introduced a backlit color screen which was awesome i loved mine it was cube shaped it was so cool it was actually right. really sweet um and then you had other Game Boy handhelds like the dual screen in 2004, which also incorporated a touch screen now, and it had multiple screens on it, so you had a whole new different way of playing. Sony, trying to keep up, releases the PlayStation Portable, which is eh, not super successful, but a beautiful large resolution display. Uh, they had these weird discs, the UMD format discs, which were just... It didn't work uh, as much as they wanted it to. But the next series, like Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, they upped the graphics ante even further. Not only that, they upped the, the interface. Yeah. Right? And how you interact with it. Because, again, you have a lot of these gimmicky things that are happening, right? But the big thing about Xbox 360, and also with Wii, too, is that you now, the controller idea is starting to shift. Right. Who is the controller? Is 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 the controller a system that's wired? No. Is it wireless? We had seen some of that. Not even that anymore. I mean, Nintendo got it part of the way with the with the whole the Wii wand, right? Right. And the and to some success, some of the games were really great. Some of the games like Red Steel, not did so not, great. Not so yeah. great. Cool idea that you know you could you could turn it, make it into a gun, or use it to swing like a sword. Would have loved to see that in a Star Wars game. Eventually, they did they did do that. But you start to see a, a huge leap forward with when you get to the Kinect, right? The idea that you can use cameras and motion sensors to really your hand is the controller you are the the controller the system's doing everything else yeah and you had playstation i which was coupled with playstation move which is still kind of around uh connect is the big one connect is the one who who really innovated that 
And it's a shame that Sony can't really get behind it, but the patents would never allow it, right? It, the copyright laws would just be too too right. bad to try to deal with. Uh, but we'll see. That might lighten up in time. But yeah, I mean, this most past couple of years, past 10 years of generations of consoles, right? So PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, Xbox 360, Xbox One, they've, they're all moving, but it seems very stagnant to me these days. The games are improving. The quality is improving. But the innovation is is somewhat lacking. Because it's all going to mobile devices now. Well, that's a part of it. That's a big part of it. I think that some games are on the right track. Big open world games. Obviously, like the, the Grand Theft Auto series. Because when Grand Theft Auto 3 came on the market with the PlayStation 2, that changed everything. And it upped the ante in terms of controversial, too. You thought, you know, Mortal Kombat was controversial. Now you're beating up hookers and stealing money and, you know, you're part of a gang and you're shooting people left and right and you can blow off the heads of cops well, I mean, and you can do I all sorts say, of stuff. say GTA Vice City had a lot of that too. Well, that was after, that was after three. Was it after three? Okay. That was a sequel, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. It's all within the same, you know, generation I, of console. I, I got, it's right. I got, I got my numbers confused. No, you're absolutely right. That was a huge <laughs> deal. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, every Grand Theft Auto that's come out since then has has continued up the ante with San Andreas and then eventually Grand Theft Auto It's like, how, how offensive can we get? GTA basically. V. Yeah, but now it's not even about that. Now it's about innovation in terms of their gameplay and the graphics and all of that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to be a gamer. But for me... I, I sold I traded back my PS3. I used some of that money to buy a Wii U for my kids because, you know, it's a family gaming console. But I don't really have a gaming console anymore. I have my gaming PC. It works really well for me. It's got better graphics than anything else out there. And even though it's five years old, I'm going to update it this year because it finally needs that update. And when that happens, it's going to blow everything else out of the water. And that's a whole new type of gaming that's happening now. Because remember, MMOs have been almost exclusive to the PC for a long time. EverQuest was a huge thing. World of Warcraft, I mean, my God, we could spend a whole episode talking about the impact that World of Warcraft has had. Thank yeah. God we're not going to, but we could if we wanted to. Yeah. And Blizzard is set for a long period of yeah, time. Yeah, there, there are so many games in the 90s and early 2000s that we've, we've moved over that are so huge and important that we just don't have the time to talk about. But online gaming is a huge thing. And when it comes to the PC, especially first-person shooters, so, you know, Counter-Strike was the big thing that, that propelled the first-person shooter in the military uh, aspect of that forward, right? Well, Battlefield uh, 1942 was another huge one that brought all these well, new ones. to give it its credit, Doom. Sure, Doom, Quake, back in the day, those were, you know, Wolfenstein 3D. Those were like the big first, proto-first-person right. shooters, right? Those were the first ones to come on the market to start that big controversy stir. Now they've just up the ante with all of these. But my point is that the PC now is becoming that all-in-one gaming console because not only can you play those games, but you can also play the big gaming consoles right now, like the, you know, Batman Arkham series, right? Uh, anything Skyrim is going to release on the PC as well as the console. Fallout, all these really fantastic games that, yeah, you can get on the console, but guess what you get with the PC? You get way better graphics, you get way better loading times, and you can mod them. And this is that whole element of the indie game culture, right? We've, we've given tools now to people who make games. Uh, or the people who make games, I should say, have given tools to the, to the player to modify the game. To change it in a way that they want to. To add other elements to it. 
And that's where the PC is really moving forward because you can mod and change the games to your liking. And it encouraged a whole culture of indie game developers who are now developing on all kinds of platforms, not just on the PC, but also releasing smaller, more affordable games in the online marketplaces for Xbox and PlayStation. And my God, again, we could spend a whole episode talking about the impact of the mobile gaming market, right? So what iPad and iPhone have done for gaming and all the Android device devices that are out there are is huge. A whole new way of introducing gamers who didn't even know they were gamers, who to are the, super yeah. casual people who just picked it up right. and learned a love for video games. To the point, and this is a, I mean, we're about to witness something huge, right? Because Nintendo, who had been the longest yeah. holdout. Oh, yeah. Right? Sega was developing iOS games. Sure. Because they right? were the software company for a long time. Right. Now. Atari was developing iOS games. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of the other big game companies who were developing for Nintendo were also developing for iOS. Nintendo has finally caved. A couple, as a couple months ago, they, they're, they're working on finally developing games for the iOS platform. Now, what that's going to look like, we don't know. Are they new games? What everybody wants are, con- are, are versions of the old games that can be ported over. I, w- I mean, I don't care. I want Mario on my iPad or on my yeah. phone. I'll, and, you know, I would pay money for it. Nintendo always said that it wasn't the optimal experience to, to play those games, that they, they were intended for a controller. But everyone has controllers now. You can buy Bluetooth controllers for your iPhone or iPad. Absolutely. Uh, you, they have apps where you can use the iPhone as a controller for the iPad and similar stuff for Android consoles that are out there. So if you jail, Even if you jailbreak it, but there but there are legitimate controllers. Like, yeah, that's what I'm control, talking about. The controllers that you ones. can get that they there are certain games that are being yeah. coded to support them, right? So, yeah. So it's an exciting time for video games right now. And, you know, I think that some people still view video games as being childish or they view video games as being outside of their influence because they've never played them before. But pick up a console, try it out. You'd be surprised at how many amazing stories that go into so much more detail. Like, I've been playing RPGs for a long time because I love to read and I love to watch movies and television. And those are amazing ways that I experience these long, drawn-out, incredible stories with great character development and and fully voiced actors and i can do that in rpgs and honest, you can't anywhere yeah. else and honestly i think that attitude about gaming not being a family device is starting to change because think about it who the kids who were being told that now are in their 30s now yeah they're having kids case in point sit yeah. right in front of you right exactly here. and what are they doing the parents are playing video games and guess what the kids watch their parents play, or they get a game that they can participate in, too. Yeah. it's beca- It becomes something that actually brings the family together. And Weird. you can really thank Nintendo for, you know, the Wii U, or for the Wii and, the, and now the Wii U, for making that that uh, an even more believable bridge and, and encouraging the other console makers to make that a reality, too. So, you know, we've, we've covered a lot here, folks. We've gone over a lot of the details of how everything came to be, but we haven't even really you know, touched on is the culture of video games and what that means. And I feel like that can definitely be an episode for the future. We're not going to do a three-parter, but I feel like I want to hear listener feedback and I want to get your guys' input. And I'd love to include that in a future episode about, you know, what video games and alternative forms of, of entertainment really mean to us as a culture. Because pretty soon, the idea of a video game might be going away because virtual reality is becoming a real deal. Augmented reality, too, yeah. Yeah, Occultist Rift is going to be here very soon. And when it does, it's going to be the next big moment, like when the NES came on the market. Oculus. Or Oculus, thank you. I always say Occultist, I don't know why. Uh, Oculus Rift, yeah. When that comes out, it's going to to be that next big moment. Yeah. 
in, in video game history. And it might just bring us one step closer to what I've always wanted, a holodeck. Yeah. I want Star Trek to be a reality, goddammit. I mean, we're at the point now where we're, we're almost at the, like the minority report system where if we have a video game system where we can control it with just our gestures yeah all we need is a holographic interface in front of us to be able to do that and thank you for going minority report with that not iron man i appreciate that well it was the first one i know that's why i'm saying i appreciate that yeah naturally iron man but jesus i'm tired i am tired too (laughs) Uh, it's been a long night folks but um let's uh let's quickly do some feedback and then we'll uh we'll wrap things up wrap things up okay this week in listener feedback God, there's so much more I want to talk about. Talk about EverQuest for so long. I'm going to play EverQuest next, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes out. So if you guys are going to be online, I will see you there. (laughs) We can build houses together. It'll be beautiful. I could build the Nerd Cave, and we could go on adventures. Would you like to do that, Brian? Sure. (laughs) Sure. Uh, We actually have a great piece of feedback, and it's a request about transcriptions. I'm not going to read the whole thing out because it's actually very small. But um, the name is uh, Gerlins. Um, and we just want to say thank you for the feedback. It's a long one. We appreciate the offer. We'll talk it over uh, and we'll uh, we'll get back to you. But it's about tra- getting transcriptions of the podcast and being able to list research out. So um, it's not so much feedback as it is more of an offer, but it was used through our feedback channel. So um, that being said, let's also read some stuff that happened on Twitter. Funny, uh, we got one from... Uh, there was a like from Bailey when we talked about pe- the bunnies could get double pregnant mm. from when we were talking about the uh, <laughs> ooey gooey cream puff Jesus. Mm-hmm. I just think it was funny because when she, when they said that, she responded, hashtag what on earth, hashtag no gracias, hashtag it's a thing at Nerd on <laughs> <laughs> So uh, thank you, Bailey, for that. Uh, just the red, of course. Um, this is more of a comment for nerds on film, but she misses nerds on the street and wants to know if we'll, uh, we'll do it again. We, mu- we might. We might. I think it's just we we haven't found the right venue for it yet. Um, I mean, I'll be honest with you, we're getting into our thirties, so uh, even though you know we're still young, the idea of doing the whole waiting out for a midnight release of a of a movie is kind of exhausting. So it's I think we have to do it for for the right thing. We maybe we'll do it for Star Wars. We'll see because that's a huge release. We have to do it for Star Wars. Yeah, we've got. This is gonna be a big Star year. Star Wars is coming out. That's. Wow, yeah. That's going to just... I, 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 they're probably going to start releasing tickets like three months in advance for that. Um, what, they're not already out? Yeah, uh, we do actually have one piece of criticism, and I'd love to hear Eric's comment on this. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that I missed her earlier. Uh, it is from Miss Lizzie, and it's about the purple dye yes. that we made the comments of on our Status Symbols episode. Do you remember reading it? Mm-hmm. Also, uh, do you want me to read it out, or do you want me to summarize it? Go ahead, summarize it. Liz, Lizzie had said that, no, it was the, the, the purple dye is a myth, and this is actually one of her pet peeves, um, that purple dye is actually, was actually common, uh, going back to antiquity, and the royal, royal purple was royal for the same reason as gold is precious, it's the source. Um, Which what is what we said. We did say that. Yeah. We'd love to get some clarification on that one, actually, because I think we're actually in a complete agreement about what, what is it? It's not so much a myth as so much as we said it's Well, the... maybe we could have maybe we could have said it better. I think maybe that's the problem is that the way we said it may have sounded confusing. But we, we, we mentioned that because it was made from um from the thousands and thousands and thousands of ground up mollusk shells is what made it you know, as pop is as as 
rare as it was, but maybe we just said it badly to imply that purple was rare. We might have said it like that. I might have said it like that. If I did, I apologize. That's not what I meant to say. So there you go. So, Lizzie, thank you for bringing it up, and thank you for the clarification, Eric. So, uh, yeah, just let us know if, um, if that's what you meant, and uh, we'll continue the conversation from there. You know, I just, I love getting feedback from our listeners. We do. Um, I gotta say something. I ain't done yet. I'm almost done. And I'll say this, and we'll be done, okay, I promise. We, we, we did move on. I know. Okay. okay. But I'm not ready just yet. There's something, there's something, something, oh, it's lingering. I would hate myself if I didn't say this. Peter Molyneux is the M. Night Shyamalan of the video game world. Why are you making declarative statements like that? Because I hate him. Because he's a jerk. Because he invented Fable, which was totally promised to be totally awesome, and it wasn't. It was good, but it wasn't amazing. And then every single game he's made since Black and White. So Black and White was totally like his his sixth sense, right? right? And 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 Fable was kind of like, you know, signs, right? Okay, I can, I can get behind what it. What about good, uh, he doesn't really have an unbreakable, but we'll call we'll call Black and White also unbreakable. Okay, okay, because that was a good movie. Um, but The Village is absolutely pretty much like everything else he's ever made since then, and every other crappy movie M Night Shyamalan has made since then. Um, and I just have to say that he pisses me off because he always promises these amazing games and then he doesn't totally deliver them. Goddess was fun for about ten minutes on my iPad and then I got boring really quick. So, uh, Peter. You suck, and I would like you to know that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most uh, adversarial I have ever <laughs> seen Eric Brickmont, let alone on our podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do right now. I'm actually kind of processing. I'm, I'm, I'm a little proud, but I'm also a little aghast. I like my video games, and I don't like Peter messing them up. <laughs> okay. So his choice for John Cleese voice acting and and Fable uh, was it Fable? I don't know. It was the third one or the fourth one, but or if there is it is a fourth one, but that just that was great. But come on, man, you keep delivering and it's pissing me off. What are the odds you think he's going to listen to this podcast and reply to us? Okay, it's probably pretty rare, but I'm just saying it. Just I had I had to say it. But you know what you can do to make sure he does listen to the podcast, listeners? Can you can you answer for me? Tell them about it. <laughs> Tell your friends about it. Spread the word of nerd. It was Fable 3, by the way, as John Cleese. Was Thank you for clarifying. Good, good choice. I'm closing right now. <laughs> uh, we, we, we have a multitude of channels that you can share with your friends. Our, all of our social media pro- profiles on the interwebs via Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, even Google+. Though no one really goes to that page. Um we are out there. Search the webs. You can find Deuteronomy. I guarantee you. Give us some feedback. Go to Deuteronomy.com. Click on Talk to Us. Buy a t-shirt while you're there. Some of them are pretty funny. Some of them are kind of scary. But you know what? They're all in good fun and it supports a good cause. They're all made in the Western Hemisphere. Support uh, ethical, you know, ch- shirt making. And what you can also do is you can throw us a little money if you want. Donate. Or you can support us through our affiliates. Audible. Amazon, audible.com forward slash nerdonomy. Oh, sorry, audibletrial.com forward slash nerdonomy. Uh, or click on the links on our website. Tons of ways you can help us out. Um, but more importantly, like we said, tell your friends. Spread the word of nerd. Please. We are living in this cave right now. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> and kidding. it smells terrible. It smells terrible. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're living in a car. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> 
but you know what, nerds, this has been a great episode. We look forward to hearing your feedback about it and uh, maybe branching a topic again sometime soon about the culture of it. Until then, though, it is that time. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Adios. Bye-bye. Seriously, black and white. It was such a good Oh my game. god, have let you ever it go. Played it? Have you let ever it played go. it? Have you ever let played it? Let it go. Have you ever played it? No. You should. You know why? It's good. Everything else he's ever made, you know what you should do with it? Burn it. Okay, Fable 3, kind of okay. But uh, the John Cleese part was the only really good part.